Hello, I'm Hashem Montasser, and you're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the worlds of arts, culture, tech, and of course, food. In September 2019, Jennifer Lopez walked out on the red carpet of the Toronto Film Festival in a mustard yellow ruffle dress for the premiere of her movie Hustlers. It immediately made the headlines, and what made the gown even more special is that it was designed by the Dubai-based studio Maison Yeya. Maison Yeya was established over a decade ago by Yasmin Yeya. Yasmin, like myself, was born and raised in Egypt and spent some time in Dubai working in advertising before going back home and making a name for herself as a designer. I feel like we already know each other uh, uh, for, from a long time, which is not the case, but I feel I've known you for a long time, just right after the lockdown. We were both invited to a dinner party, and then we spoke either the next day or, the, or two days after, and you and I were talking, we were both Egyptian, so to start with, and I've just discovered that you grew up in Ismailia, so yes. we're going to talk about that as well. <laughs> but we spoke about, A, what it feels like to be Egyptian and living here, and also amongst a relatively small community of Egyptians uh, that are entrepreneurs, that run their own businesses, and the pros and cons of that, and the challenges that come with that in the sense of how people perceive us broadly as Egyptians. Tell us a little bit about your own experience. When I used to live in Egypt, I didn't really see that. You start discovering that people don't expect you to be successful or doing something that is a little bit avant-garde just because you're Egyptian. Mm-hmm. And why, there's there, there is a stigma. Well, I think we're 100 million, right? Mm-hmm. And plus. We're 100 million plus. This is what we know of. <laughs> so. And uh, um, we have so many socioeconomic um, sectors in the, in the same society that have totally different education, totally different value systems even. And what the people actually see is so different from what we know in Egypt. So, And usually successful Egyptians tend to stay in Egypt. Correct. They're doing well and tend to stay in Egypt. And a lot of the working uh, uh, class that go out, they have totally different education and totally different um, set of values. And these are the people that probably you would see them in the Gulf Correct. or in the other countries. So you yeah. see blue-collar workers. Blue co- exactly. Uh, exactly. And we have a lot of them. And a lot of them. Obviously, we, we export a lot of people, generally, to the Gulf especially. Exactly. So then... Um, were you aware of that when you decided to move here? Because you were in Egypt and you were successful and you have built a brand for yourself. Did that come up, the concept of, oh, I'm going to now be an Egyptian in the Gulf with whatever perception comes of that? I never even saw it. Didn't think, you no, didn't I think never, of it? By the, I am someone by default that I never... I always look at opportunities. I always... And I overtrust my capabilities, whether it's true or not. But I'm always someone who's like, I'm going to do it. I'm... But I didn't even see this as a hurdle because in Egypt you don't see it. We're very self-sufficient. You are in and a, very inward-looking. Yeah, exactly. In the good and the bad. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, definitely not. No, I didn't even see it. So what made you decide? Uh, let me move to Dubai. I know your sister was living here, so that must have been uh, a factor. Actually, I used to live here from 2003 to 2007. Okay. I started my career here. I used to work in advertising agencies, um, as in actually not on the creative side, on the client servicing side. And I stayed here for four years. I came back to Egypt when I decided I want to become a fashion designer. I want to launch my business. So I went back to Egypt and then I came here uh, 2016. And, and can I just pause for a second? What prompted that decision? I mean, you studied architecture, am I Go right? Back? No, I studied finance. Finance, oh, even, even, even further <laughs> yes. away from, I read somewhere that was architecture, my bad. So I wanted to be an architect. 
when I was in school, I wanted to be an Maybe architect. That's, that's I've always, I've always wanted to do something in the arts. I used to draw and paint. I was always, I had the artistic side very uh, prominent in my personality and my interests. But then, for some reason or another, in our culture, the Arabic culture, art is not a real job, right? So, you have a high GPA. You take yeah. with all the GPA the highest. Uh, so I went to business administration school, finance, and that's just to follow this. The, the mentality of the sure. parents or the, the what we think of is a success or a real job. And then, and I did very well. I love finance too. But then at the end of the school, I started taking art classes because this is what I also love to do. And then when I came here, I worked in, uh, in, in advertising. Yeah, in advertising. And fashion is always something that I, I knew. I know how to sew since a very young age. My mom used to make our clothes. And to me, it was something that I knew how to do. My sister was getting married and I had to make a dress to wear, I wanted to buy a dress for, for myself, for myself to attend the wedding. At that time, I used to make five thousand dirhams as an account junior account executive. So I went to all the stores. The dresses that I would love are like thirty thousand dirhams and plus. I was like, can't afford it, and I can't afford it, and I can do it. It's not difficult. And I look at them. This, the material there is like probably worth 200, 300 dirhams. So I said, you know what? I went to Satwa, to a place in Satwa. I bought some fabrics. I went to uh, cut it in, in my house, and I didn't have a, a sewing machine at the time. I went to a tailor on Satwa. I gave him 200 dirhams. I told him, listen, I'm going to give you this money for you to step out of the machine. I tried to explain to him first what I want. We and you took over the machine. I told him, can you please step <laughs> step, step aside, <laughs> step sir. Aside. I'm, I'm taking over. I gave him 200 dirhams. I said, would you please let me? It was such a funny thing in Satwa, me with my... <laughs> I wish we had pictures of it. Yes. That. And it started from then. You went, you took over the sewing machine and you had the confidence to go to your sister's wedding, which was not a small event for you or for her, actually, with something completely untried? It was a hit. This is what actually made me say, you know what? I love doing this. So you went there and people started complimenting your they, my, the, my friends and her friends would go to me when, you know, all the pow to the powder room and said, oh, so you live in Dubai. Would you please let us know from where did you buy your dress? We go to Dubai and we can't find stuff that... As nice. I said, I did it. He said, no way. I said, I swear I did it. Mm. Look at the stitches. <laughs> They're not very perfect. Mm. I did it. And then my friends started commissioning me doing dress for them. That's and then I came back here. My colleagues in, at work, they, I made friends, uh, dresses for them. And it started like that. I love the story, first of all, <laughs> I have to say. But, you know, you studied finance, so clearly you knew the kind of risks that it takes to start a business. Because one thing is the kind of sexiness that you hear of fashion designer. It's very glamorous, it's very sexy, it's very prominent. But it's a business at the end of the day and it's not an easy business. Like any business, it has its difficulties. Did you stop for a second and consider that when you started your business and you said, you know what, I'm talented, I'm just going to give it a try and see where it goes. Was there a hesitancy for you to start the business? I believe that some people are born entrepreneurs. Mm. And if you are from that kind of breed, uh, I think that you wouldn't settle for, the, for, for a job where people tell you what to do and you want to have the room to be able to do what you think is right. And no one can tell you that this is not going to happen. You're going to make it happen. And this is what... And you me. felt you were one of those Oh my people. God, I couldn't. I mean, I couldn't stay in a job. I said... And to me, to take fashion is like, well, I know how to do that. I love doing it. To me, it's not a job. And I don't want to be an employee, so let me try. 
So, uh, yeah, I never thought, and plus, plus also fashion is not, uh, it, it's not a big investment. Uh, it's, it, it's, you don't put a lot of investment in it. No, sure. It's so mostly I, your craftsmanship. Yes. And um, why did you focus primarily on bridal and bridal gowns as opposed to kind of general fashion? That's actually a funny story because a lot of the things that happened to my, in my career are actually by pure coincidence. So I started by making short, sexy dresses, party dresses, okay. because... Again, I didn't want to be tied down to customized, and that was not my thing. I said, I'm going to go to Egypt, make, uh, get a couple of um, tailors, make some nice, you know, cocktail at dresses. The time, at the time, I was 24, and that was the life, you know. You work in the morning, you party at the evening. So I found a shortage into a certain sector in the market, which is interesting, uh, um, accessible uh, uh, in terms of, I mean, cheap uh, or not very expensive party dresses. So I started doing that. From that, I started getting uh, people that wanted to customize, and that was more money for me. So a lot of my decisions were based on actually, you know what? This is being the, the finance would come mm -hmm. kick in now. Commercial decisions. Commercial yeah. decisions, yeah. So I did. I started doing uh, evening customizations. And then I got I got married, I got pregnant, and when I got pregnant, I didn't. I wanted to stay with my kids in the beginning. Uh, I wanted to have longer projects. Uh, I wanted to be able to spend more time at uh, with with my kids. And uh, by default, I said, okay, I'm gonna only take bridal bridal gowns right now. Mm. When I started doing the bridal, some I don't know. I, Something it, it, It's like I was always meant to do bridal. Yeah. It really went very well. You were like the was, Vera Wang of the Middle East. I was start. I started to be known for that, and it was a coincidence because the decision came from me wanting to just like, take longer projects. Where do you draw your inspirations from for that? Is it that you wake up in the morning and think, you know, for the next year I'm going to work with this material, these colors, or how does it all come together? That whole creative process. This is a very interesting. I get asked all the time. Sure. Quite, whenever there is an interview. And to tell you the truth, I never had an answer for that. So Good. I always used to make up an answer. Okay. I, I get inspired from, I don't know, the beauty. Of Let, the let's not make I, up an answer. <laughs> no, you no. Can also say I'm telling you, because yeah. recently I've been thinking about that. Mm. Recently I was like, I can't be asked, asked, what do I really get my inspiration from? And I discovered that I'm someone who express, I mean, any artist, I guess, you find it easier to express yourself through your, med your art medium. Okay, so in my case, I love fabrics and I love colors and I, lo I love fabrics and uh, everything that happens to me throughout the days. I always look at beautiful things. I mean, I, we could be sitting here. What the, the moment I walked in, I, I appreciated the beauty and the feel of this floor. Thank it you. has a certain kind. Uh, it gives me calm. And I think subconsciously this gets registered sure. inside and. The day that I decide to make a collection, all of these moments start coming out. Start coming out subconsciously without me knowing. Well, because of social media, we're a little bit privy to your thinking because I follow you on Instagram. And I was going to say, I was going to try to answer it for you. <laughs> <laughs> How ridiculous. Because I can see from uh, your posts, personal posts, that a lot of things, nature, colors, things that you, that you, that you see that you're uh, posting about are clearly being processed as part of your inspiration. And I'm sure that's probably a part of what comes out when you start. There moment, uh, mo if you look around, you see around you, honestly, in the, whether in nature or in people or things that around you, moments of awe and beauty. I mean, I, I can't explain it. It's something that, that happens. It's an automatic process. Yeah.
And and then uh, so let's say you, you you start your process every year. Do you work with a big team, a small team? Do you work alone? Uh, we have a medium. We have a good team of twenty people. And is it collaborative or you come up with the ideas and then they execute? The creative process, no, it's uh, at this point it's only me because we're a small creative uh, um, uh, place. Um, however, I have a very solid team that translates this creative vision. Like uh, very highly skilled seamstresses and uh, tailors and cutters. And um, it's very important because as, as, a, as a creative person, the more you're going to have this kind of support, the more room you're going to have for your creativity. For your own. And where do you source your fabrics from? Any so my, the, okay, so it's a, uh, in our industry, usually you have all the beading. We, have an, we, we bead also, we do a lot of embroideries in-house. But a lot of the, the most exquisite, I love luxury material. So the most exqu exquisite embroideries come from India. Okay. And uh, all the silks, silks come from Como or Italy. Uh, the lace from France, Belgium and Italy. And some of the more advanced uh, laser cut uh, technologies come from uh, Switzerland. So you bring it all here. I love, this is the most beautiful part <laughs> of the job, is me traveling ah, you travel <laughs> to all of discover, these places okay. to, this, to, to buy. Yeah, the purchasing uh, trips are usually... And then, then everything gets, uh, gets shipped here. Yes. And then you kind of put it together, essentially. Yeah. So what happens also, like when, when I'm planning this trip, there's always a mood now. So for example, I'll tell you a story. So before, before Corona... I was in a trip to buy. Actually, Corona happened in March. In February, there was a buying trip. And at that time, I was very... Um, I like philosophy, and I read a lot, a little bit about philosophy, and I was reading about the, the, the idea of depth. And I started to say, let's talk about depth in my next collection. So I, I went and I bought blue, deep blue, uh, gold, because of the, the reflection of the sun on the sea is gold, and then you go into the depth, you find the deep blue and stuff, and then Corona happened. And the fabrics arrived. And I looked at the blue and I wanted to puke. <laughs> I said, I want trend. I want fuchsia. <laughs> you see? I'm in a very different said, state no, of no, mind. No, no, no. We're going we're gonna to put all of these oh fabrics on the side. I want fire. And I started now buying red and gold. And, yeah. And so. how did you manage during that corona period? Offline, before we started, you were saying that one of the silver linings of, of, of the COVID uh, pandemic is you felt that a lot of Emiratis that were essentially stuck at home started discovering your brand and your work. And yeah. that has been a blessing in disguise, essentially. Well, we usually, I mean, for, from 2006 7 to 2016, we're predominantly in Egypt. And okay. then the decision to come here, when a lot of... Uh, Egypt is, you know, a lot of Kuwaitis and Saudis have houses in Egypt and they like to come to Egypt on all their vacations. And I started growing my Khaliji clientele from there. So I said I was confident to come here that I'm going to, I already have a Khaliji uh, clientele. When I came here, it was very surprising that the majority of my clientele was still Kuwaiti and Saudis and we didn't have a lot of Emiratis. And also us being a bit ignorant about I mean, the Middle East, we think that the Emirati and the Kuwaiti the and Khaliji, the Gulf, like probably we think that all Asians all are the same. same. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. But that's not true. Once, once I came here, I started discovering that the Kuwaiti has a totally different personality, inspiration, and aspiration, education, than the Saudi, than the Emirati, than the Bahraini. And then when the corona, and I, I was always very curious about the Emirati because they're very reserved and they're very closed and... Um, they're very different from, from what, I, what we know from the Kuwaitis and, the, and the, the Saudis predominantly. 
So when the corona happened, we started getting more and more um, uh, Emiratis because there, were, there was lockdown and these people, they wanted to make smaller weddings. So we started meeting with them more and talking to them more. And I got a very interesting comment from an Emirati older lady. She told me, um, thank you for introducing my daughter to the, to the Egyptian culture. Mm-hmm. So... I don't think Emiratis, they don't go no, they, out a lot. They and, don't and they certainly didn't have the same, sorry to, uh, to interrupt you, the same uh, ties to Egypt. As you said, historically, Saudi and Kuwait yes. uh, have always been, um, as you said, come to Egypt, have homes there, come in the summers, etc. Yeah. Emiratis, a lot less. Yes, exactly. And a lot of them also uh, um, studied in Egypt. Yeah. The, the older generation, yes, but the new generation, which is Correct. predominantly my, my uh, demographic of clientele, they, they don't, don't know, know much about uh, Egyptian or Egypt. Yeah. So which... Parts of Egyptian culture that you introduce the daughter to. You want to know something? I always, <laughs> whenever there's a bride, I do. Uh, Zagrat. <laughs> yes, I'm very proud of my culture. I love my culture, and um, I think Zagrut is across the Arab world. I don't think it's only Egyptian. They, they don't have. I don't know. They have it here. They have it in um, the Levant. Mm. They have it differently than us. Uh, but our Egyptian Zagruta well, is very special. <laughs> so I, use, I always, we always talk about Egypt. I mean, and not only that, even if you don't even bring from where, where you're from, but just dealing with the people on a certain honest emotional level when they, you become an ambassador for your culture 100%. and your, yeah. Because you, uh, you work and design wedding dresses and because that's a very emotional purchase, this is not like, buying, as you said, a cocktail dress or shoes. You are coming in, you're working with prospective clients that are very charged, highly charged, probably emotional at that stage. So your job is part psychologist, part designer. How do you deal with that? I mean, do you, and do you feel these relationships are transient or they last beyond the purchase? So the moment they come, they spend time with you. You probably get to last way beyond. They I do, mean, huh? Till date, I have even clients that got married and divorced and we're still friends, you know? Yeah, you still hear from <laughs> like, Yeah, I mean... But yeah. how do you deal with that part? That's a lot of stuff that's probably being offloaded on you. When, when I... Before I have my kids... Mm. I used to hate bridezillas. I did not understand. <laughs> I did not understand this kind of psychology. That are they all bridezillas? It depends on their nationality, <laughs> to tell you the truth. I mean, some women are more, some nationalities are more bridezillas than others. Okay. Uh, and because it's the culture of the wedding and the expectations and Pressure. what pressures it, it, there is on the woman. So after I got my, my kids and I became a mother and I have daughters I don't know why, maybe it's a hormonal shift that <laughs> happened to me, but I started really um, g- uh, seeing the woman at that time, whether the mother of the bride, the grandmother of the bride, or the bride herself, as a very vulnerable being. Mm, I was going to say. And I started to accommodate a lot of, those, of this neediness as me not being only a designer, but as, like, so many times I would see the bride crying, and I would yep. tell her, you know what? Put a hold on the dress. Forget the dress. Mm, let's talk. What's bothering you? Yeah. Some of them even we sort of know. So you developed empathy really for their yes. situation. And, and became a pleasure, became something extra, became something else completely that actually gives meaning to my job. Mm, that's is so that it's, um, it's a, as you said, it's a very vulnerable mo- moment in the, in the, in the, the process, family, yeah. The, yeah, in the family, in the, in the mom and in her daughter's uh, life. And 
you participate in making a dream happen. So basically, the dress that I make for the woman, you see the, the look that you get from her mother is priceless. The idea of me making her daughter the way she dreamt of, oh my God, it puts tears to my eyes. That's so interesting though, because I almost have a feeling that you were saying at the beginning, it was the process of creating the dresses, maybe a little bit less of the interaction with the actual person. Over time, you've developed kind of an understanding, a deeper understanding connection to the client, to the customer, and part of it is understanding their vulnerabilities and accepting it and not judging it. Not only that, it's de- I even developed a, a certain kind of, of pleasure and satisfaction mm. from being able to participate in that moment. In that to be, I feel honored. And, and ima- she would remember me for the, ho- for the rest of her life every time she's going to look at the pictures, you know. She gonna, when, if she's upset and she remembers that that day I made her feel better because it's a very tough time for the bride, really. They organize everything. I don't know. Sometimes they, don't, they feel like their, li- their lives is going to be changed forever. There is a lot of psychological management for the bride and her mother that used to be done at that time. And it's not about the dress anymore. It's about being part of that moment in their lives. 100%. Yeah. Are the husbands or fathers ever involved out of curiosity? Yes. They are? Yes, not the husbands. It's it's bad omen for us Arabs that the husband would be involved. Okay, that's Sometimes right. Sometimes they're don't jealous because the, the, the bride would go uh, would go and uh, say, uh, so I met this designer and she's doing the... So, that, so why are you talking about her that much? It happened to me a lot, by the way. <laughs> From the husband, he said, I really wanted to meet you because she's talking too much about you. That's so funny. <laughs> because we become friends, you know. Of and, and the process for her to do a wedding dress doesn't happen to her every every day. So for her, it's a process that makes her feel good, you know. And the, the fathers, yes, they come. A lot of the, the... It's not a very Arab thing that the dad would be involved. But every now and then, we find a very cute dad that comes in and actually would close the zipper for the for his daughter oh, and cry when he sees his daughter with the wedding dress or how do you in that process which is fraught with a lot of psychological drama in a way um so someone's coming in it's a new bride she has certain ideas you think the ideas i'm just going to use a hypothetical example are terrible uh you have something else in mind that you think might fit her or fit that moment do you steer her away from her ideas or do you say, oh, you know, my job is to execute whatever you want? I mean, how do you, how is that dialogue go to go from meeting one to shaping a dress? Okay, so yesterday, mm. as recent as yesterday, mm. I had a client, a beautiful girl, very soft and nice girl from Egypt, Egyptian bride. And she just wants to make a small event and she wants to wear a jumpsuit. Mm. Interesting. And me, and me as... Yes, me in the design. At first, I look at her body. I don't think that the jumpsuit is what's going to complement her body the most. Mm, it's not flattering. It's not flattering. And thinking about her mother, I don't think that her mother, and she's the only child, would like to see her in a jumpsuit for her wedding. You know? <laughs> so funny. So, no, it's so funny that you're really getting... This is getting how I think. Yeah. This is how I was thinking. <laughs> and, and even for her, I mean, why would you, f- why would you <laughs> forgo this moment, you know, of you're going to have pictures and this, you need a wedding dress. Did you tell her that? I didn't tell her that. In mm. the beginning, I didn't tell her that. So I tell her, okay, you always, there's mm. a way. I mean, but you, you really can't, I mean, some people have it and some no, people No, me have me. That's I why mean, I'm so passionate. Maybe I'm a little bit manipulative. No, <laughs> But no, for a good no. reason. <laughs> yeah, no, it's sort of like somebody who has experience, yeah. who's sharing that experience, but you're trying to do you. it. In, yeah, you have to do it in a way that's gentle. 
you can't go and be like that's rubbish you're gonna look terrible in a jumpsuit to, to tell you the truth in the beginning of my career that the people were more resistant because yeah, I, I was not known yeah. and whatever what, what what is the value of my opinion you're just someone that we heard of and we're gonna try you out But then now you sit and people, because you do, you, they've seen your work on other people and they've seen how people look different in, in, in our clothes. So they say, no, they're coming because they trust our input. So this is also plays a big part. Yeah. But then again, you show her, okay, you, you, you tag along, you play along, you say, okay, I'm going to put on a jumpsuit on you and I'm going to put a dress on you and let's see which one will make your body looks nicer. So she sees the dress. And she is convinced. Oh, that's so interesting. Mm. So she came out yesterday with, well, she's coming back today. I hope she doesn't change, it, change her <laughs> mind. Well, the But good news, this wouldn't, this wouldn't air in two, a couple of days. By the time yeah. we close <laughs> the deal. <laughs> you'll close the deal first. Okay, so uh, she changed her mind and she's convinced because it's true that it makes her, and my interest to, to 100%. I want her to look her best. Sure. I want her to remember, to, to everyone to tell her, you looked awesome. So it's not my, I don't care if it's jumpsuit or a dress, but I want, her to, I want to give her an honest opinion. Yasmin's goal of wanting people to look their absolute best took a surprising turn last year when J.Lo picked out her dress for the premiere of her movie Hustlers. The story behind that, right after the short break. Hi guys, this is Hashem again, and I'm excited to share with you that we've launched our newest concept called Small. It's based on a menu of, well, um, small indulgent dishes that you can mix and match. My personal favorite is the merguez in brioche which is just divine. You will find small among other locally born fabulous concepts like sticky rice, reef koshiaki, and boon coffee. Small is on the first floor of the food district at the point on Palm Jumeirah. You can follow us at Small Dubai, that's S-M-O-L-D-U-B-A-I on Instagram, or drop us a line if you stop by. Welcome back, I'm Hashem Montasser, and you're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with Yasmin Yeya, founder of Maison Yeya. Let's uh, talk about that famous um, yellow mustard dress that you designed for a certain someone. So you have kind of your J-Lo moment. Yeah, well, when I say the real story, everybody gets surprised. Everybody wants to hear that I went and I saw J-Lo <laughs> and I measured her up and I told her, well, honey, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> Yeah, no, this is not what really yeah, happened. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> We have a lot of international stylists following us. And stylists usually uh, scout the, the, the newest designers, the, the, the nice looks, and they gather probably like 50 looks for one event, especially the bigger the celebrity is, the more choices she's going to get. And then there will be a room where it's like 50 dress, and J-Lo will enter. I wasn't there, so that was in New York. Um, and... We send our stuff. The stylists call us. We have a fitting for, let's say, Beyonce, J-Lo. So many big names, by the way, we send things for. Not all of them are successful. But that day, apparently J-Lo picked our, the, the yellow mustard dress. And we didn't know. We just woke up one day, tagged. And we saw ah, the so dress. Ah, so they didn't tell you, by the way, she's... Yeah. You just literally found it on I, social we media. Literally, I literally wow. woke up the day and I looked at the Instagram where actually the girl's handling the Instagram. I was like, it's me, wait a minute. like, what? It's like, J-Lo is wore the... I was like, amazing. Thank God. Alhamdulillah. Mm-hmm. Well, you and I had a discussion um, about this just earlier today because I was saying, we were talking about moments like that, which I think you are describing it as luck. You know, I mean, sort of you have to be lucky in your career. And my view was, the way I interpret it is, it actually, you work very hard, you build a base, and then you position yourself so that you can get lucky. 
In other words, there is that base and the hard work that you've put up for that moment. That moment doesn't just happen out of nowhere. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like a moment like that is obviously you already were successful and established even before uh, Jennifer Lopez chose your dress. But of course, that moment put you probably on an even higher pedestal. That came from a lot of hard work. Is that how you felt or was your feeling more like, oh, I'm lucky. You know, there were 50 dresses and she just found mine. I, I always feel gifted and lucky. And definitely... The hard work, you, you, I work hard, definitely. I mean, any, anyone who have established anything in any sort or any field, definitely they work hard. I mean, you cannot be noticed unless there is a lot of sincerity and in your work and integrity and a lot of uh, seriousness in what you do. And you take it seriously. And this is how I take my job. I take my job very seriously. And not because I want to reach somewhere, but because I love it and I love... Again, when I make a dress for, let's say, Hashem's wife, I want her to go to be. Ha I want to contribute into making things around me happier and better. So, but however, J Lo could have wa walked that day. She probably, I don't know, someone stepped on her, and this guy was wearing a yellow pants, yellow mustard <laughs> pants. She said, "No, I'm not into yellow mustard today," even though the dress looked good on her. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So. Moments like these, and I, I really be believe in the, in the divine master planning, you know. And I think, uh, um, I think some things unfold in our careers and some turns are, are taking because they're meant to be and because this is where the divine master planning is planned for us. And if you look forward from here, do you see yourself doing something differently or would you want to for the rest of your career be doing just that do you see you growing the collection do you see yourself moving into other lines of art outside of of, of fashion I mean you're obviously very multi-dimensional and multi-faceted you could do a lot of things uh, during the corona time I've, I've I don't I never want to discount the artistic part and how I do my job definitely this this always I want to stay no matter how we grow and uh I mean, what thing, one thing our, our house is known for, Maison Yaya is known for, is that the very customized, uh, very family, uh, very service-oriented way, the way we deal with clients. And I'm definitely, being a businesswoman and someone who studies finance, I'm on the first steps of scaling. I'm thinking of scaling, and I'm thinking of introducing more ready-to-wear lines. We're already, I'm already actually currently working on that. And one of the main challenges that I'm actually thinking about and is how to take this um, brand um, uh, values value to scalability because of course you're gonna have to 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 lose them in a way or another, but then this is something that I'm currently working on and I don't want to to lose it with. You know that's so fascinating. So before we started the lighthouse, we spent about a year working on the values, which would sound a little bit ridiculous, but it really isn't for very similar reasons. So our thinking at the time was. One is we were new into this business and you wanted to have almost like a Bible to go back to, right? So when I look at our menu development, our interior design, music, even the pieces, crockery, everything, we wanted to fall back on certain values. But then to your point exactly, as we look to scale and expand, that becomes even more important because it doesn't mean that restaurant number two or location number three or even if we do a cloud kitchen should look identical to what we have in D3. But you want the values to be reflected. To answer the same, to the same value. So I'm trying to say that I think in your case, because I think you've divine, defined the values quite well, um, even if you decide to kind of branch 
over and above to you know ready to wear or others accessories who knows the, that value system will will translate um, it's just a matter of translating it into a new new exactly. something new so we're we're we're, we're creating right now uh, a ready to wear bridal line and um, for example we thought that high customizations for example usually when you buy any ready to wear dress it is like that and we cannot change anything about it but to take the extra mile because to offer high customization on ready to wear this is something that will so deliver yeah deliver the the the, the, the values of our brand. Well, sometimes also, you know, between uh, when, when you study finance, a lot of these decisions definitely affect profit, profit, profitability, but sure. then it comes again to your, your value. Who we are, do we want to make money regardless or we want, we want to make money and make people happy and has we meaning feel to happy. You. Yeah, yes. has meaning to you yes. and your team. Yes. This is sort of related um, but I hadn't realized that you grew up in Smaleo. I spoke about this now for a yeah. second. So I, mean, I, I assumed you had grown up in Cairo, but you didn't. How, how, that must have had, that's defining because I don't know Smaleo very well. I've visited two or three times in my childhood. I know what it's like to grow up in Cairo, which is very, very different. I have a feeling just from having met you a number of times now that that really uh, is important to you and in, in some ways has shaped the way you feel and think about things. Walk us a little bit through that because Smaleo... It's so, not very well known. So my dad used to be a, a marine pilot, okay. and um, he used to work in Suez Canal. So I was born in Suez. We stayed there one year, and then we moved to Smalia, where he was uh, working there for 13, for 14 years. And uh, me, my mom is French. Smalia is a French city. 100%. I mean, the French house influence. is... Yeah, very strong French it's influence. It's built by the French. Yeah. My dad, the Suez Canal, the, all the terminologies in my dad's job was... I mean, a day off was called a, a malade, you know. Amazing. <laughs> we, were, we had the oldest uh, uh, French school, Saint-Vincent-de-Paul, in, in, uh, in Smilea. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful place to be. And uh, we had a very nuclear... I mean, when I used to visit my cousins in Cairo, um, the, the idea that they're not along with the neighbors or they don't know their... <laughs> or they don't know their neighbors. Or they, don't, yeah. they only know the neighbors of the building. We, know, we knew Everybody. the whole place. I yeah. mean, my neighbor, uh, she used to be my French teacher in school and uh, the other neighbors used to be next to me in class. And it, we grew up in a very nuclear society that I think um, installed a sense of... Uh, of uh, uh, belonging, community. Belonging and values and beauty and everything around us was really, really very beautiful. I mean, the trees, the mango trees of Smali, uh, the, uh our house used to look at the Suez Canal. My dad, we used to pass by the ship and he used to do pee pee for us. Like, it was, it was like a fairy tale. It was like, you know, the, the things that you see in the cartoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we grew up in a, in, a, in a very loving and beautiful environment. Yeah. And then the transition to Cairo, you you went, moved to Cairo when you were 14? We moved when I was 14, and we, when I was, yeah, 14, we moved to Cairo. And it was a culture shock. Yeah, it was, it was a culture shock. People were so sorry, mean. Sorry, I'm laughing. No, I no. I feel sorry for you. People today. were so mean, really, so mean. <laughs> I was like, come on, man. <laughs> Hold on, idiot. It's, uh, I, I, I can tell you the exact, almost exact opposite story. So having, having grown up in Cairo, it's exactly what you said, which is completely hectic. When I moved to the States for college, uh, I was in Boston first. And two things were my first freshman year. I had two problems. One is I would tell my roommates, why is it so quiet? 
So in the <laughs> evening, there'll be like nothing. You can't hear anybody. There's no beeping. And I'm like, I can't sleep. And he's like, are you crazy? I'm like, no, I can't sleep. You know, I'm, I grew up in a place where it's honking nonstop, you know, every yeah. day, morning, evening. Number two, I was annoyed, I have to admit, by how nice people were. Yeah. So I found it really annoying that everybody was like, good morning, what's going on? So then when I moved to New York, I finally found myself. Yeah. Because New York was a bit like Cairo. People were mean, no one said hello, Nobody they were all in black. Nobody has time for anyone. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No one had time for everyone. I was like, I found heaven. <laughs> you know, you see. That's every- why actually I like Dubai a lot. Yeah. I mean, because Dubai is like how I grew up. I mean... In some part, ways. In some ways. Or you, you can, can find that. You can find that in Dubai. Yeah. Or in Cairo, this, I don't think you can. No, in Cairo, I, lo- I love the vibrance of Cairo. I love that in living in Cairo, you can go every other... We have three days weekend, basically. And so. we go to in Sukhna, we go to Guna, we go to Sahel, we go... We very... We have a nice lifestyle in Egypt, to tell you 100%. the truth. The most beautiful beaches. But uh, the, I love the calmness of Dubai, of the UAE. Well, I think that's, that's exactly the point. I don't think there's one that's bad and one that's good. I think it's A, what you're used to. So I was used to extremely vibrant, very yeah. fast-paced type of city living. And for many, many years, that's what I wanted. That's what I was seeking. Now, as I get a bit older, I'm starting to appreciate at, at a much later point in my life. I mean, so I'm 46 I'm starting to, I was telling you earlier how now I go to the beach with my children and that's a big highlight of the week for me. That, that didn't happen 10 years ago for a reason. So people adjust over, over the years, but I do think that your original years where you grow up are, are very defining definitely, in the way you look at things. Definitely, definitely, 100%. And I'm guessing that that has even seeped into the subconscious of the work you do. In terms I, of... I feel it all the time. I feel, And now actually, um, you know some moments come back in your later life and you remember some childhood memories. I'm actually so funny that I wanted to create a collection inspired from the things that I've, the, 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 I have screenshots of uh, some architecture oh, that nice. used to be in Smalia, some, uh, you know, f- feel, uh, moments of, you know, we have those huge mango trees under them yes. in a nice uh, breezy summer day, the smell. I want to recreate that feeling definitely in some of my collections. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I, I, don't, I don't know if it was Smalaya, I think it was in Aswan, but uh, I was reading at some point in the New Yorker an article about this famous nose that's developing perfumes. And Hermes developed this one particular perfume, which is lovely. And the mango smell was coming from Egypt. I think it was from Aswan. I'm not sure. I'm going to double check. Yeah. But it had such a huge influence on that nose, on the person working for Hermes, that he incorporated. So these things really matter. Yeah, they really do matter. Yeah, they go into our emotional memory. And after that, they go into, they get expressed in any, in another form. Let me just shift gears here for a minute and ask you a little bit about family life. You have uh, twins, you're blessed with twin daughters. You obviously have a very busy work life. Uh, You travel, etc., how do you manage that? Do you bring them into everything and say the hell with it? You know, they'll see what happens and I'll have time. Or do you try to separate those neatly in terms of you have your work, maybe you come to your studio or your office or atelier here in D3, and then you go home and that's it. Do you separate or do you mix? No, I separate. You separate. I separate. Okay. My girls, funny enough, like, I mean, every, every, everyone's dream to have their kids as an extension, okay? Yeah. So basically, if... If I'm a fashion designer, I want my kids to be playing around with the... I try Fabrics. to force them. I try to force them. They're tomboys. Oh. They say, Mom, we don't like dresses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we like games. And we like... So, um, no, 
before in the beginning i used to be very always feeling very guilty that i spent long hours at work and it was such because i love my work and i love my kids so i felt like i was cheating on my kids well, am i a bad mom because i love my work and i want to spend more hours to do this and if when i sit at home with my kids and i feel like something is slipping at work i would say am i a bad what, what is it and i used to feel guilty in the beginning but now um i kind of had this i started feeling like you know what this over romantic view that we need to spend all our time with the kids i mean it's only happened the past 200 years after that moms used to travel for like and then come back to their kids after three years and uh, people used to die early i mean kids need love right 100 percent. it's, it's love. about love it's not yes. I, i agree with you yeah. and i also think it's a very oversimplified view of life and unfortunately one that disproportionately women have to deal with i mean i'm not saying i mean i'm a, but i feel fewer men Society makes fewer men feel guilty about that yeah. versus women. So they if, uh, started making you feel guilty now, huh? Now, <laughs> yeah, started, finally. It's don't up. let them do this yes, to you. <laughs> it's, like, it's catching up now. But, you know, yeah. it's okay for a husband or, a, or the father to be at work late or travel all the time yeah. because he's earning a living for his family. When it comes to women, that's, there's always a, a not, very it's, different... It's not uh, true. Just make sure that your kids are getting love. I think the love right. can be from you, from the from the wife, from the grandmother, from the nanny also. Like yeah. I, I'm not gonna have my nanny raise the kids. Well, my nanny is part of us. Well, your family. My, our nanny is is family. She's uh, to me. She's closer to me actually than a lot of other members of my family that I didn't see in a really long time. And if if we don't have this familial mechanics and and trust and love all between, so how come? I mean, she's in our lives you know so uh, no i stopped feeling guilty good but i love spending time with my kids i mean uh so and i love spending time on my own also so i always like i always divide my day so i in the morning i would go and sit with my kids before they go to school but not not out of duty because i want i have happy to i enjoy it and then if i feel i worked too much you know what no it's enough about work i want to go back home and have a nice meal with my kids so no i don't think about it that much and it is what it is if i feel overworked and i feel i want to go back home close the door and not see anyone it is what it is and also remember kids pick up what they want to pick up i mean my own mother worked all her life she was a university professor yeah And I used to get upset when I was young because she'd come home, close the door in her room uh, to, to, uh, to correct exams. And I used to feel like, you know, why is she not spending time with us? And as I grew older, I appreciated that. And it gave me a lot of appreciation when I see my wife now working. And it's funnily enough, same, same job. But um, I really, so what I'm trying to say is I think kids, you, you have that feeling now, but they also see a working mother. And that's going to affect their decision-making and their views on, on women in, in yes, life. Yes, and their and sense of independence healthy. also. Definitely. 100%. I don't think that kids... I mean, if you look back in history, if you read in history, um, people used to go to war. Men used to go to war at the age of 13. It used to be men. We extended the childhood of kids, you know. People used to... When they said, oh, she used to, what is child molesting? She used to get married when she's like 13. I mean... She was not a kid. She was a woman at that time. But more and more, we're extending the childhood of our kids and we're, we're discounting their abilities of being independent and understanding concepts and taking care of themselves even. Well, I don't do this with my kids, of course. I have someone sitting with them, but I mean, 
Uh, I believe that when you start raising your kids to be independent emotionally and give them a certain kind of strength to be able to decide things from themselves and not keep on spoon feeding them, whether ideas or sh- over sheltering them, I think Cuddling this is them. good for their for their uh, development. I, I completely agree. I, I think that's and it's good that you can speak about this openly as well. Um, I have one final question for you, and it has to do with your fatta. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I make a very good so, fatta. Yeah, apparently, <laughs> and I you're going to try this very yeah, soon. <laughs> I heard that you make a very good fatta. So I'm going to use that as a symbol. To, what's your relationship with food? Because that's obviously something that's very important to you. We talked about this I earlier. I love food. I is it lo- because it has childhood memories for you, or is it because... Um, I think... Okay, so I have... Two relationships with food. One is very good and one is very bad. Okay. The one that is good is the one that has to do with the, with the savoring, the beauty of the, in, this kind of sensory mm. the feeling, sensory part. the sensory part. The smell, the taste. The, the smell, the taste. It's the like tac- music to my feet. mouth, you yeah. know? It's like when you listen to good music to your ears, when a good idea comes to your mind and, you know, this kind of yeah. like... M- Gives you pleasure. Pleasure. So this is the good and I love it, and I love tasting all kinds of food and closing my eyes and singing to the food and stuff like that. It's just a very sick relationship. <laughs> but then there is also and that's the, the healthy part, mind you. Yeah, <laughs> there is also the gluttonous. Uh, um, I mean, I think a lot of us now, even is this modern day generation, we have a lot of emotional issues also. Hundred percent. So emotions and food and and uh, over or binge eating sure. or you know. Uh, I think all of us have it. This is the bad relationship that I'm very aware of and I control from mm. cyclically. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah you in all cases, I'm a big consumer of good quality food and bad quality food. Yeah. You're, I think you're, look, you're not the only one. We had here a guest a couple of weeks ago who's a psychologist and she deals with food disorders primarily. And of course, the, the pandemic didn't help. But I think all of us, as you said, have many of us have a relationship with food, but it can turn unhealthy. And I think the key is just to know where yeah. to stop. So, so last week I was in uh, the lighthouse, and mm-hmm. you should have seen me when I was tasting the goat cheese, the goat cheese salad. <laughs> you, you should have. This has to, to be one of your ads. You okay, should have seen me singing to the goat cheese salad, and that was the savory part. Okay. And then when we the the toffee, that was the gluttonous part. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know what? I'm full, but I have to take. That. I have to. This is gonna fix my mood for the rest of the day. Oh. Now that I know, now that you I really know. have good food. No, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, I mean, I feel like, uh, you know, maybe fatta is in our carts. So we're going to yes, come yes, and yes. sample and the I'm fatta gonna, soon. Yeah. Uh-huh. Inshallah. Very soon. You can follow Maison Yaya and their work on Instagram at Maison Yaya. And you can find us on Instagram too while you're there at the lighthouse underscore AE. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hasha Montasser. Our producer is Chirag Desai and our content director is Farah Sharif. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with one of your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcast as it helps more people discover the show. We'll see you in two weeks.